And that is such a wondrous day that every saint can recall when Jesus Christ came into your life. We ought to give him praise for that, that Jesus Christ came into our life. I don't know about you, but I rejoice knowing the fact that Jesus Christ came into my life. I was sitting on that back pew right here in this local church when Jesus Christ came into my life. And I haven't been the same since. Now I love him and now I trust him all because Jesus Christ came into my life. And that's a wonderful, wonderful praise. Well, it's a glorious thing and it is a, just a beautiful privilege for me to be here. I can't think of a of a better place to be on a day like this than God's house with his people in his word, praising Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain. And uh, it's a joy for me. And I was just thinking even this weekend uh, that I have the privilege of being able to feed the very church that fed me as a young man. I understand and I'm uh, firmly convinced that Everlasting Life Baptist Church firmly believes in the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of the scriptures. Jesus Christ reigns supreme over all of creation, but he's ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people right here at this church. And you believe firmly in the sufficiency of the word of God, and that is what changes the lives of people. He's using it to draw people to himself in salvation, and he's using it to sanctify men and women in himself in sanctification. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I would invite you to turn in the copy of your scriptures to Luke chapter 15 this morning. Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 32 in this great, great gospel according to Luke, the writer. You know, uh, as you're turning there, I just, you know, you start to think about things that, that bring you joy, things that bring you delight, things that give you an opportunity to jump out and praise. And I can remember... Uh, the first time we brought our sweet little uh, kids, their first little puppy named Hazel. She's a sweet little Yorkie and um, came in and she was so cute and cuddly. And I can remember the looks on our kids' faces when we brought this little little dog into the house for the first time. It was great joy. And some people uh, have great joy when they do that. But over time, you know, about a month later, when they realized they had to clean up after little cute Hazel, a little bit of that joy started to wear off a little bit. Six months later, she wasn't cute Hazel. She was just Hazel. A year later, she just became the dog. <laughs> now she's, uh, no, I'm just playing. We, we love our puppy. I don't want to give y'all animal rights. It's going to take me out right after this sermon. Uh, you know, people love dogs more than humans these days. I, I don't want to get beat up after the message, amen. <laughs> But all that being said, the joy was exciting in the beginning, and then it wanes over time. And sometimes, even as Christians, we can be that way with salvation. It's a wondrous thing that brings heaven the highest joy. And we can be excited about it early on, but over years, six months, a year, five years, the excitement and the joy that it brings the Christian can wane over time. But I'm here to tell you that it's heaven's highest joy over one sinner that repents. God don't need to see 500 people come to EOBC for him to have high joy. One sinner that repents will bring heaven the highest praise and the highest joy. And we're going to see that unfold in this text this morning. But I'm going to read this entire parable uh, of Luke 15, verses 11 
through 32. And if you're recording and taking notes, this is one loving father and two lost sons. One loving father and two lost sons. But the text reads as follows. It says in verse 11, and he said, he being Jesus, that a man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, uh, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of their country and he sent them into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods of the swine that they were eating. And no one was giving him anything. And but when he had came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a, as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and, and put a ring on his hand and, and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he has come to life again. He was lost and he has been found. And they began to celebrate. But now his older brother was a son in the field. Now the older son was in the field. And, and when he came and he approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring of these things and what they could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and he was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have give, never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and he has begun to live. He was lost and he has been found. Gracious Father, I thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you that you have given us uh, this precious gift of being able to look at the inspired scriptures and see uh, your character, your will on display and right now, Lord, I pray that you would harness our attention right now, that we might hear clearly from heaven. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to teach us this morning, to rebuke us, 
uh, to correct us and train us in righteousness so that we might be equipped for every good work. Lord, I pray that you would be with the preacher. May I boldly proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And in the end, may he be exalted and may your people be edified. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, as I mentioned, today's sermon is usually referred to as uh, this prodigal son, but it really is the one loving father and two lost sons. One loving father and two lost sons. You know, people refer to this as the prodigal son, uh, but in most languages, do you realize that this parable was translated really as uh, the waiting father because it emphasized the father? And even places in Germany and Europe, they would say that this is the parable of the sovereign father or the parable of the gracious father. It wasn't about the son. Make no mistake, it's not about the son. It's all about the father. It's all about the father. It's about a loving father who shows compassion towards his sons. And Jesus teaches this parable to help us to see that God rejoices over one sinner that repents over one. You know, Jesus had just been walking with his disciples and performing the works of God. And and he had been healing the sick and raising the dead and giving sight to the blind and granting forgiveness to the sinners. You see, so much that Jesus became a friend of sinners. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the religious leaders hated Jesus because he became a friend of sinners. That was his his mission. He, He didn't come for those who thought they were healthy. He came to the sick that knew that something was wrong. And he helped the sinners to repent. And that hatred and hostility was most prominent amongst the religious leaders. And they couldn't stand Jesus because he was amongst these sinners. And you you know the reason why they couldn't stand it? You see, they claimed to know the law of God, uh, but their practice was divorced from the love of God. They had all insights to the law, but they they were divorced from the love. They they missed it altogether. And even in Luke 15, 1 through 2, it showed, it says, this man receives sinners and he actually eats with them. It had the audacity to eat with sinners, is what they said to Jesus. You imagine that? Parables of the lost sheep right here in chapter 15 in the first seven verses. It, it helps us to understand and picture God as being a shepherd who left the 99 to go after the one because the one was important. And even uh, after that, it has a parable of the lost coin. And in Luke 15, 9, it says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. It was picturing heaven's highest joy. And even in this parable now of the loving father, he helps us to understand he rejoices over a son who was lost, but now he's found. And do you realize that if you were lost at one point in time, the moment you were found, heaven had highest rejoicing. Heaven had highest rejoicing. God rejoices over one sinner who repents. And the main point of the message today is this. Because God rejoices and receives sinners who repent, so should we. So should we. We should receive them and rejoice with heaven when one sinner repents. You know, and and the way we're going to see this is we're going to look at a couple of aspects of the the younger son and the older son. And we're going to see the depth and the height and the breadth of the love of God through Jesus Christ. And as we look at that, it'll be absolutely clear that heaven rejoices over one sinner that repents. Well, let's look at the first thing there in Luke chapter 15 verses 11 through 24, and we're going to see the younger son. And in this younger son, we're going to see the attitude of the sinner. You know, sinners didn't realize they had an attitude, right? Some of y'all didn't know you had an attitude. But we're going to show you on display that every sinner on this earth that has been saved, they had an attitude of hostility towards God. 
They had actions. Even if it's not consistent with this uh, younger son, you had an attitude of rebellion against God. And that's the first thing that we see in verses 11 through 16. You had an attitude of rebellion. Look at this. Was the younger son, he, he said he had a man with two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the state that falls to me. You see, the son's inheritance, which is what you're supposed to receive after your father dies, is what he wanted immediately, you know? And even in Deuteronomy 21, 17, there was an allowance that the father could divide his inheritance even while he was still alive, as long as he gave the oldest son uh, a double portion, or either two-thirds to the older and one-third to the younger. Uh, and so ain't that just like the sinner, so rebellious, on his stuff now? I'm sure the younger son went to the father and said, you know what? According to Deuteronomy, you know, he probably didn't pronounce it right. You know, that's how unbelievers do, right? They, 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 they misuse scripture. They pronounce it wrong. You know, according to Deuteronomy, I think you owe me some Deuteronomy. <laughs> he was like, you give me some Deuteronomy. Um, anyway, he, he probably wanted money right now instead of later when his father died. But you know what he ultimately was saying to his dad in the Hebrew understanding? He really was saying, Dad, I wish you was dead so I could take the property that belongs to me. That was sad. That would have been an assault to the character of his dad. But this is what happened. And I'm sure that the people in the, in the village that were, they were observing this, it would have been a high offense for this son to have the audacity to come to his dad and say, I wish he was dead so you can give me my stuff now. I got things to do. You know, you just got to die. That was really what he was saying. And even in the ancient Near East, there would have been a phrase that all the people in the village would have said if they heard this re- response. They would have been like this. They said, uh, I know he didn't, you know, and, um, and, it, and it would have been followed by, a, oh, I know he just didn't. I mean, uh, that would have been the response of the ancient Near East. Even uh, they would have said it in, in a different language, of course. But, uh, but they would have been appalled by these attitudes of this younger son. They ultimately said, I don't want the rules. I don't want to abide by the law. I just want my desires to be on display. And sometimes we have to help our children with this. We got kids uh, that are entering into those teenage years. And, and sometimes they're like, man, you got a rule for this. You got a rule for that. You got a rule for this. We got another rule for this. But the, what they don't realize is that mom and dad don't have a rule for this and a rule for that and a rule for that. Because we know how to live. You see, we understand the importance of those rules are to guide you, to help you to understand how to live. And some people in their rebellious state against God, they just see him as a list of rules. God just got a rule for this. I can't do this. I got to do this. But did you realize that there is joy in obeying those rules? God says if you follow those rules, they are better for you. But when you are an unrepentant sinner at the time, you have the highest sense of rebellion. All you see is rules. You don't see the love of God. And that was just like this young son. He just saw rules and that's all he saw. And so therefore he wanted to get out of the, the house. He's like, man, I can't wait. Almost like how our kids say, I can't wait when I can just eat ice cream all night. I'm going to eat ice cream for breakfast. I'm going to eat ice cream for lunch. I'm going to eat ice cream for dinner. And me, me and my wife, Maria, we just be like, yeah, you go ahead. We see, see what that waistline going to look like that first semester in college, you know, see what's going to be going on. The heart is going to mess up with you. But, but kids just see rules. That's all they see is rules, right? All they see is rules, and that's what this younger son did. And so what happened? Uh, the father, he could have easily said, no, that's not the wisest thing. But what did he do? It says there in verse 12, he divided his wealth between them. Father puts up no fight. He was willing to lose his son because he wanted to really help him to see what was in his heart. That's just amazing. He's just like, you know what? Let me let you see what's in your heart. Clearly, I'm teaching you. You don't want to know. I'm going to let you go and follow the sins after your heart. I'm going to give you counsel and wisdom, but I, I got to let you go. And in verse 13, it says, and not many days later, the youngest son gathered everything together and went on a journey in a distant country. And then he squandered his estate with loose living. You know, he went to a distant country. He wanted to make sure really what they understood this is that he went to a Gentile nation. 
He wanted to get to a place where there were no Jews around. There was nobody that was going to even remotely remind him of the law of God. He's like, let me get somewhere where even I won't be convicted just by standing around people that love the Torah. That was what he wanted to do. And that's what the unbeliever does. They, they find a safe place with people that sin just like them. He would have went to a Gentile nation, most likely a, a pagan culture. And it said he had loose living. That's where the King James in, interprets that as prodigal. And that's where you get prodigal son a lot of times. It's wasteful uh, money that's thrown to the wind of pleasures is what it is. They just said that's what he did. He just threw money here, threw money there. It was all about his pleasures. And that's the attitude of the, of the sinner. He went to this foreign country, this distant country. And I need to ask you here today, there's somebody here, I'm, I'm assuming, that is trying to journey into that distant country. You done been raised in the church. You've heard of the law of God. You've seen it. It's old hat for you. But you say, man, I got to go out. And you might not go overseas. You might not even go to a different state. But you're saying, I need to just journey out and see if the, if the grass truly is greener on the other side of the church walls, right? I got to go and venture this out on myself. There's a lot of people that were raised in the church. And you young people need to listen up. Listen up. Mom and dad got you in God's house. You're like, I'm going to do it for a season. But you count down your days because you can't wait until you get a chance to go to that distant country. And I'm here to tell you, you need to stop. The grass is not greener on that other side. It's, it's priority and principles, and it's beauty in obeying the principles of God. But in verse 14, he went, to, he went on. He said he spent everything, and a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. You know, things just went from bad to worse. He outside daddy's house, he in this foreign country, he's partying, kicking it, hanging out, people loving him, right? That's what they do. But he didn't realize that he got impoverished, and now he's in a state of need. You know, and even God is, is kind to remind us of his word. His word doesn't fail. And even in Proverbs 13, 15, it says the way of the transgressor is hard. They don't realize it. They think they're getting by, but that, that lifestyle is hard. It'll catch up to you. You might have fun in the beginning, but over time you see people, in, and I've seen some folks that have been in that party scene, and, and they're in their 30s, and they look like they're in their 60s because life has just worn them out. Just worn them out. They think they're partying. They're still coming like, yeah, I'm ready. Like, no, you ain't ready. You ain't ready. You ain't ready. In your mind, you're ready, but your body is saying something else. But the way of the transgressor is hard. It's hard. But he's out there. In verse 15, it said he went out and hired himself to one of the citizens of the country, and, and it sent him into the fields to feed swine. You know, he hired himself out. That really was a single term, meaning that he cleaved to this person. It was almost as if he took this person in a distant land that's a Gentile, not a Jew, and he cleaned, cleaved to him, said, I got to have you. I got to get fed. I got to have some, something to eat, begging him. He, he gripped him. He was glued to this foreign farmer and begged him each day for work. First violation is that he was in a Gentile farmer's land and working for him. That would have been a violation to the Jew. And then second, he's feeding swine. He's feeding swine. The, the pig was detestable to the Jew. You know, they thought that this was filthy. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't say the word pig. They didn't even get close to a pig. And one preacher said that they didn't even have piggy banks. I mean, that's how bad it was with pigs. They were, they were so away from the swine and the pig. They didn't, it was like, no, you save your money somewhere else. Don't even put it in the piggy bank. That's, that's dishonoring to God, you know. And, but, but they hated the swine. It was detestable to them. But here it is. He's cleaning swine. He's working with them, feeding them. Ceremonially, he would have been unclean according to the law of God. But, but in verse 16, look at what happens. He says he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods of the swine that they were eating. And no one was giving him anything. You see, that just shows you the nature of superficial relationships. When he had all that wealth and inherited that estate that was given to him, he had everybody in the room. It was like, oh, look at him. He's hanging. He had friends upon friends. But then the moment that he's in need, the superficiality 
kind of helped them to understand that you don't really have true friends. They love you when you was out partying and hanging out and spending your money here and there on loose living. But as soon as the money ran out, the, the friends ran out. And he found himself lost and alone. And that's just you know as well. Being in rebellion and hostility towards God, you, you think that you got friends when you're out there in the world. But they can turn on you just as soon as, as, as the, the day would turn to tomorrow. The friend can turn on the one who thought he was his friend. And this is what happened. Nobody's around. Nobody's giving him anything. He said that he goes on. And I, I just think about Ephesians 2.12. You know, when you're outside of God's household and outside of his principles, you're helpless, hopeless, and without anyone. And that's where every sinner was before God. Ephesians 2.12, it says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That's where all of us were when we were outside of God's kingdom. We had no hope. Even if we had fun, we had no hope because we didn't have God. And you see so people so entrenched in their sinful lifestyle, and you just wonder, man, how did they get there? You know what they did? They just one degree at a time. They said, oh, I don't need to do this. I've seen some people, they say, oh, you know what? I'm in the student ministry. They ain't really having fun enough, so I'll just stop going. You know, and then they come into church and they're here. I'll get a job so I can stop coming. I'm tired of hearing that truth. One degree at a time. They come in as a college student, staying at home, and, and then their family's talking about truth, so they leave the house and go and got to get in a place to stay. And they had a place to stay. They see people in the church, and so they got to move out, out of state further and further away from the truth. And before you know it, people look at them three or four years from there and be like, how did he get there? You know how they got there? One degree at a time. A lot of times they won't do anything flagrant while they're here. They'll wait one degree at a time and say, I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to hear the sermon. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. And before you know it, they are fully engaged in sin. That's the insanity of sin, by the way. They're really, sin is not rational. It's irrational. And it leads you to insanity. You know, in the heart of man, there is a birth, uh, from birth, a relentless desire of self-pleasure leading to self-indulgence. That's in every person's heart at birth. You know, and, and, and when you give full vent to this lust, there are foolish choices that take place. Self-absorbed decisions and evil appetites that will harm you. You don't even realize it. Everybody else sees it, but you don't. You scoff at the word of God, you scoff at his people, and you say, I ain't going to be like them. I'm going to do my own thing. It's anti-social, anti-loving, and it's anti-God. That's the insanity of sin. You know, and even in, it's, it's biblical. Romans 1.18 says that, right? It says, it says, for by their own unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. That truth is like a beach ball wanting to bounce up in people's life. And you know how it is? They say, no, nope, no, nope, I got to sin. And so they try to suppress it, and it bounces up again. And every state, it convicts them because they have a conscience from God, but they want to suppress the truth and act like it doesn't exist. Everybody in the world see them in their sinful lifetime, even unbelievers. They be looking over like, boy, here he go again, doing something foolish. They ain't even reading scripture. It's almost like a movie to them. They eating popcorn like, yep, you can do something stupid now. I mean, it's just, they see it happening. But you done been in, in the church, hearing the truth, and you run away from it because you're suppressing it. And it's even bringing shame to Christ because we've seen it happen over and over again. You know, see, from sin's standpoint, it promises everything, but it offers nothing. It, it promises to fulfill you, but it leaves you empty every time. Sin will always make you stay longer than you want to stay and make you play longer than you want to play. And in the end, you'll have nothing to live for. This momentary satisfaction of the pleasures of man can turn into a lifetime of separation from the promises of God. And you don't realize it just one degree at a time. But my question for you today is, are you still living in a life of rebellion? Are you living in a life of rebellion right now? 
You can laugh at the, at the preacher's illustrations and you can laugh at this, this, this younger son who's going out with loose living and say, man, that's crazy. That ain't me. But are you still rebelling against God right now? Say, man, that truth might be good for God's church, but it ain't good for me. Are you still under that state of rebellion? Even if you've not done anything on the extreme level of this son, you may not have asked for your parents' inheritance. You may not have gone out to kill anybody. You may not have robbed a bank. But if your heart is not given to Jesus Christ, you are still a rebel against God. You're a rebel. You have the attitude of this rebellion. But then, you know, the biggest thing you can do right now is to acknowledge that you're a rebel. You know, God says, I'll take you if you're hot. I'll take you if you're cold. But if you're lukewarm, what does he do? He want to spit you out of his mouth. He says, I can't handle with you if you're in that loose ground. The worst thing you can do is to be a rebel, but to act like you're a saint. To come in here and go through the religious activities. I go to church. I listen to a preacher online, you know, every six months. and I'm good, you know, and, and uh, you, you, you kind of go through that religious activity. But in your heart, you're still rebellious against God. God said, don't play games. Don't play games. Come and repent. Because, see, the moment that you recognize that you're a rebel is the greatest opportunity you can have the next attitude that we see in this passage, and that's the attitude of repentance. Look there at verses 17 through 21, and you can see the Scriptures, what it says. He says in verse 17, but when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, you know, that's a literal meaning of this phrase in the Hebrew. It meant that he arrived. He came to. That was what the Semitic Hebrew phrase it meant. It carried the idea of repentance. When they saw someone that had grew up around hearing the Torah and growing up through Judaism, and then they went out and did some crazy things in the village, and they saw him, they would pray for him, they would pray for him. And when they came back, they said, ah, he's come too. He's come too. He's come to his senses. He realized that we've taught him, we've taught him, we've taught him, and now he's come too. And he even said there in verse 17, he says, but how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? And here it is, I'm dying with hunger. You see, he remembered the goodness of his father. Isn't that a blessing? He remembered the kindness and the graciousness of the father. And, and, and that's a, just a lesson, too, for you parents. You might be raising a child that's a rebel. How are you responding to them now? Do they know you by your goodness and your graciousness, even though they have rebellion towards you? I'm not trying to say you coddle sin and comfort them in their sin, but are you gracious to them even when they're rebellious towards you? That's what this father shows us, that he was even gracious to the son, but the son so much that he remembered the goodness of the father. And I think of God in that way. In Romans 2, 4, it says that knowing that it's the kindness of God that is meant to lead you to repentance. It's the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God that leads a sinner to repent. A sinner is saying, oh, my goodness, how much grace and patience and kindness this God is showing me to allow me to live. And I'm rebellious against him. That's what leads us to repentance. And even in verse 18, he says, I will get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. You see, true repentance recognizes that the greatest offense is before God. It's before God. David gave us an example of this in Psalm 51. In verse 4, it says, after repenting from his sin with Bathsheba, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He, he recognized that my sin was before God before it was before anybody else. Even when I was allowing it to give birth in my heart, God saw it. Even before I even asked my dad for the inheritance, he knew what was brewing in my heart. And so he recognized he had sinned against heaven. That's how you know it's true repentance. Because, see, otherwise it would have just been, man, I'm tired of these pigs. You know, I'm, I'm tired of eating with these pigs. Let me go somewhere where I can eat better. And it would have just been him going away from the consequences of his sin as opposed to the goodness of God and, and the Father, right? And that's what repentance is. Repentance, true repentance says, I'm not just, just tired because I'm tired of my sin. 
I, I'm tired of it because I know it's offending God, and I want to go back to him. And even as he do, does this in verse 19, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Notice that when he came back, he didn't give demands. You know, some, some older people come back and go, all right, mom and dad, if y'all want me to stay with you, I still got to stay out late, and I'm still going to eat my food the way I want to eat my food. I'm still going to drink your milk, you know, even though it got your name on it. I mean, they come in and they, they make demands and conditions on what it means if they come back. I got to have my privileges. He didn't have any of those demands. He didn't have any of those conditions. He said, I should even be worthy of your son. Just use me as a hired servant. I'll be, really, that says servant, but he said, I want to be your slave. Slave, that's true repentance and remorse. It wasn't that he was just sad. He actually was repentant. And that's what 2 Corinthians 7.10 teaches us. It says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And whereas worldly regret, death. Because all you're doing is you're just tired of sinning. It's just, I'm sad. I'm sorry. But you need to repent. And that's what this is. It's a uh, metanoia is the Greek word. It's a repentance. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior and lifestyle. Truly coming from a heart. It means that you're done with your sin and you turn to God. And that's what took place here. And that was even what Jesus was preaching. He was preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He didn't say, just come to the kingdom as you are. However you want to do this, let's do this thing and you can be okay. He said, repent. It's a change of mind, realizing that you've offended a holy God. And then the kingdom of God is at hand. And I'm saying for you today, are you repenting? Have you repented against uh, this holy God that you've offended? You see that on display here in verse 20. He said he got up, he went to the father. You know, people think that you... You just get tired of the pain of the poor decisions. But he goes to the father and he says uh, he's genuinely repented from his sins. And even look what happens there in verse 20. He says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he, he felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. What? You mean to tell me the father ran after him? I mean, everybody in the village at this point would be like, okay, I'm done. First, I was done with the son. Now I'm done with the father. You know, he's tripping now. He should have went out and, and, you know, he had every right in this culture to go out and, and slap his face and, and to shame him publicly because he was offended publicly. He could have shamed the son publicly and they would have expected it. They were looking like, OK, it's about to, it's about to happen. He came back. Y'all, it's on. They finna, hey, let everybody out. This is what you do to somebody that offends you. And they look and they see that the father ran to the son. They would have been like, what in the world? You mean to tell me he's he's not going to earn his way back into your good grace? You mean to tell me you're not going to publicly offend him in front of everybody? Look at what the father does. He says the father saw him, gives the indication that the father was looking, perhaps daily, waiting on the son to come back. That's the compassion of God. You need to know that even if you're a rebel right now, you're not in this house, God is patiently waiting for you, looking each and every day. This could be a day of salvation. That's how loving God is. Waiting for the son, looking at him, he saw him. Almost like Jesus in Luke 19. I'm reminded of 19.10 where it says the son of man came to seek and to save lost sinners. He's looking after him daily. And he goes further. Not only is he looking after him, he felt compassion for him. You know, like I mentioned, culturally, it would have been acceptable for him to publicly disgrace him. But you know what he did? He ran. He ran because he was filled with compassion. A grown man didn't run. He didn't run back in that culture. And that term uh, run, it it really is a Greek word that meant uh, the Olympic track runner, the one that would sprint. It wasn't like he just kind of said, okay, let me kind of lift up and just kind of dance my way over to my son. He ran like a track runner because it was that important for him to go and embrace his son and to kiss him and to let him know that he had forgiven him. And that's the compassionate love of God. He knew that he had to get to his son first because everybody else, almost like culture, they would have got 10 whoopings before he would have got home, right? That's exactly how it would have been. 
But he said, no, you won't whip him because I am going to forgive him. And that's the same grace and the love that God has for the repentant sinner. He runs to you. You run from him. He runs to you. That's the compassion that we have in a merciful, loving God. And I'm so grateful that he ran to me. Grace's father ran to me. I was running from him and he ran like the loving father. Reminded of Psalm 103, 13, he says, as a father shows compassion to his children, the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. What an amazing God that we have with would run after sinners. And notice that he embraced him and kissed him before the son even could apologize. That's how God is. He didn't know what the son was going to say. He knew that he was ready to forgive. God makes the first move like the father here. And even in Romans 5, 8, it says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to get clean. He didn't wait for you to get sober. He didn't wait for you to start saying, well, I kind of I kind of think Jesus might be good and I'm going to intellectually figure this out. Christ died for you while you were a sinner. That's the love that we have of the father. And in verse 21, he says that, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. This is really a reflection of true repentance and the depth of God's love. He said he wasn't worthy. He wasn't worthy. You see, in eternity, no one will stand before God and be able to say, worthy is me who repented. No one will be able to say that. Worthy is me who figured it out. Worthy is me who had enough intellect. Instead, we'll say worthy is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. That's what it'll be. It'll be worthy to him because of what he's done for us. And again, my question for you is, have you repented? Have you experienced that type of love of the Father? Have you stopped and said, I'm going to turn away from my sin and turn to the love of the Father who is willing to forgive? Well, that's the attitude of the sinner that goes from rebellion to repentance. But look at the response of the Father in verse 22 through 24. It says, the Father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out the robe and and put it on him. And put on a ring on his hand and the sandals on his feet. You have to say this for the younger generation. This would have been equivalent to him saying, uh, go out and bring out my robe. Go get the ring. Go get my Reeboks and bring on the ribs. I mean, that's really what he would have said. I mean, that's, that's exactly how this would have went. I mean, he was like, get the food going. Get the ribs going. Bring out my shoes. You see, in this culture, uh, what it meant is the best robe, it would have been the father's robe. He recognized and saying, you're my son. Don't even come and try to show up and be a slave. You're my child. That's how God is for the sinner that repents. He says, you're my child. You can be clothed in my righteousness and my ways. He would have gave him the ring. That meant that he would have given him all the rights and the privileges of a son. That's a beautiful thing. No matter what your identity is in this world, if you're a child of God, your identity is in Christ and your identity is with God the Father. He gave him sandals. You know, slaves didn't wear shoes. And he came in trying to be a slave. He's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to give you these sandals. That's what the son has. Gave him everything. And then he brought the fattened calf. You know, early century, they didn't really eat meat that much. And when they did, it was a special occasion going on. They said a fattened calf would have fed over 200 people. So you know what the father was thinking? Not only am I going to be reconciled to you by father and son, but I'm going to reconcile you to this entire village because I'm inviting them to see what reconciliation looks like. That's the joy that God has in heaven over one sinner that repents. You see, this is how it is. And it, it understand that it's not your works that make you right with God. It's God's works that make you right with God. You don't have enough to be right with him, but he has it all to give it to you. And that's what he did even in the Old Testament with Abraham. He credited it to him as righteousness because he believed even before he was circumcised. He credited it to him as righteousness. And the same thing in the New Testament, 
Romans 4, 5 says that we're justified, the ungodly, by faith, and it's counted to him as righteousness. That's what happens when you believe. It's God's work and not yours. And even in verse 24, he says, the son of mine was dead and he's come to life again. He's lost and he's been found. This is a picture of the sinner that repents. Like Ephesians 2 says, that you once were dead in your trespasses and sins. You, used to, you once walked uh, following the course of this world and then the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You were nature uh, of uh, children of wrath by nature. But guess what? It gets good in Ephesians 2, 4 because it says, but God. It says, but God. This is how you were, but God. He is the one that while you were deep in your sin, he was rich in mercy. And because of the great love in which he has for us and he loved you, he made you alive together with Jesus Christ. And by grace, you've been saved through faith. That's the glories of the father when he brings one sinner that repents. And then they began to celebrate, you know, just like the uh, parables that we saw before this. There is joy over lost sheep. There's joy over lost coin. But can you imagine the magnitude of the joy of a lost son? That was beautiful. God receives and rejoices over repentant sinners, and therefore so should we. I would just say this to you. If you're here today, it doesn't matter how deep you are in your sin. God's grace is greater. His grace is greater. And it doesn't matter if you've turned away from him over and over again. You can turn to Jesus Christ right now for genuine salvation. And God's arms are open wide. You know, there's no doubt that even some parents are here thinking about this. You need to take a lesson from the father waiting patiently for the wayward child. You know, many of us have friends and loved ones that have children that have gone out and they are nowhere to be found when it comes to the church. Be patiently anticipating that day when God will do the work in their heart. Be, be, be gracious, be merciful, uh, tell them truth. Don't heap it on them and kill them with it, but love them and allow your patience to draw them in so that the Lord can use the gospel to allow them to repent. And even if uh, we see how this is, this is the younger son. He shows the attitude of rebellion, of repentance, but he also sees the rejoicing of the father. Well, there's a second thing that we see here in this text, and that's the older son. You see the autopsy of self-righteous. That's really what happens. The older son was filled with self-righteousness. We see that in verses 25 through 32. And the first thing we see is that he had a hypocritical and legalistic attitude, right? That was his, his nature, his setup. Yeah, there he, he, it occurs when really your outward appearance is divorced from your, your inward attitude, you know? He had the outside. He was like, man, he was the good son. He's doing everything that the father said. On the outside, everybody's like, man, that's the perfect son right here, the older son. He's the perfect one. And on the inside of his heart, he had uh, hostility and evil and hatred. You see, the younger son, it was, it was external. Everybody saw it. But see, the younger son, he held it in his heart, and nobody saw it because he went through and did everything that people do. And you even have that in church today. People do everything on the outside, but on the inside, sometimes their hearts is far from God. And you can see that on display. He's verse 25. The oldest son was in the field. You know, really lets you know, instead of being in the house of God, he's outside in the field. And that's how some people are. They're in the house of God, but they're not really of the house of God. They're on the outskirts. They, they better to be away from God. I want to be on the outside. You know, I'm, I'm going to try to do my religious activities, but I, I still want to be away. And even there in, in uh, 25 through 26 and 27, it, 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 they was giving them the understanding that he approached the house and he heard the music and the dance. And he's like, hey, servant, what's going on here? What, what's all that noise and ruckus going on in there? And he said, you know, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf and he's received him back safe and sound. You know, that term safe and sound, it really meant that he's received him with peace, not just physical safety. But he said, everything I have is yours. There's reconciliation. So the brother would have been like, the older son would have like, what is going on? He's, he's reconciled already? Like, I didn't see the shame fest. I didn't see all this stuff, the humiliation of my younger son. I just, and all of a sudden, I hear that he's reconciled with the father. So instant rage is going on in his heart. 
And in verse 28, it shows that it said he became what? Angry. He's angry. He wasn't even willing to go inside the house. His, you see, his inward anger didn't match the outward activities of his life that made him look like the good son. That's hypocrisy. And looking at their ministries, they, they wrote about this. They said that, you know, remember that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, while they might have acknowledged that they sinned from time to time, they didn't view themselves as sinners. You see, that was a category that applied to those who were worse than they were, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the others. These are the sinners. And though the Pharisees and the scribes thought themselves to be far beyond the reach of God's grace, and so they were corrupt, and not only that, they didn't feel like they ever, ever needed God's forgiveness. It's just a sad thing. And one thing I would just ask you is, you, are you like this uh, hypocrisy here by magnifying the sins of other people and minimizing the sins of yourself? You see, that's, that's a hypocrisy, and sadly, you see that in the church. You see that. You come in here and people judge you. They tell me like, oh, look at that person. Look at them. They can't even wear, uh, they can't even wear church clothes as if for such a thing, right? They ain't even got church clothes. Look at them, man. They, they, look, at that. He, look at this tattoo. I mean, who would come in the church with a tattoo? And people say these lists of things, right? They, they magnify it as if it's sinful behavior. God says, you know what? If that was the case, nobody would qualify for being righteousness, right? The only way we qualify for being righteousness is that we have the righteousness of Christ. That's the only way. But if you're a hypocrite, you magnify the sins of others, and you don't think about those that are in your heart. But not only is it hypocritical, he was works-based in his religion. Verses 28 and 29 show this. He came out to the Father begging and pleading him. He says, look, what's going on here? You know, instead of humbling himself, he, he went to the Father mad. And you can see it on the display when he's there at verse 29. He says, be answered to the Father this way. He said, look. It's almost like he said, look, man, you know, didn't even acknowledge him as Father. He didn't even address him properly. He's like, look, you listen to me, is really what he was saying. The older son is very, very disappointed. He has anger that's boiling inside and is coming out on the father. And he says, for, for, for so many years, in verse 29, I have been serving you. Literally, the term means I've been slaving for you. You see what's going on in his heart? He's like, I've been sitting here slaving for you. He was really waiting for the inheritance probably more than the younger son. But he's sitting up here, I'm slaving for you, waiting for my share, right? That's probably what's going on. That's a little sanctified imagination, but I think that's going on in his heart. All that being said, he says, I've been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of you. at least two years old. Um, just saying, kids, just saying. And he says, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You see where this is going? It's all about him. And when you come to the Father, it can't be all about you. It must be all about him. But you see the hypocrisy and the works-based religion that's going on here in his heart? You see, he was never devoted to the Father. He was maybe obeying the commands on the outside, but on the inside, he was just waiting for his share. And that's how some people are. They're like, man, I don't want to obey the Father. I'm going to just wait and try to get my ticket into heaven. That's all I want is to be there in the end. I want to live away from the Father now, but I want to get there in the end. But guess what? If you don't have a relationship with the Father now, you will not have a relationship with him in the end. That's just kind of how it goes. You can stiff-arm the church. You can stiff-arm truth but you can't stiff arm heaven. You know, it'll happen. And eternity and stiff arm hell is what I meant to say, because hell will happen if you don't go to heaven. But that's exactly what took place. And not only this, he's outraged by grace. Look at verse 30 there. He says, when I was uh, there with the sons of yours, he's devoured this uh, wealth with prostitutes. He made stuff up. He didn't really know, but he put that in there. He says, you killed the fattened calf for him. He's offended by the fact that the son, the father forgave the son. And that's exactly who it is. And it's like the Pharisees in Luke 7, 49. They said, who is this man that, that even forgives sinners? How do you forgive sinners? How do you do that? You know, we should not be outraged by God's mercy and grace, but we should be grateful for the fact that we've been saved by his grace. 
We should be we should be merciful and gracious about that, man, to others, because we've all been saved by God's grace. You know, we, we never, ever need to get to a place where we don't see a need for God's grace. That's when you know you're at a works-based uh, religion. Like, you know, oh, man, God's grace, the person needs to work for it. He needs to earn for it. He needs to turn his life around and do these things, this, that, and the other. Man, can you articulate it this way? Oh, you don't. You, you need to go work on it. No, it's grace. By grace, you've been saved through faith. You know, a person that has grown up in the church all their life and had a reckless lifestyle, man, it's okay. It's okay because they can be saved by God's grace. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we all needed his grace. May we never lose sight of that, church. We need to be a people that give grace to people and not throw the law on top of them. Make them to, to obey our standards. Before you know it, we got standards that are off the pages of Scripture. We have, scripture got the holy standard. We got our standard. You know, God's got standards for his house. We got standards for our house. And you've seen churches kill and abuse people with that. We got our house rules. We ain't looking at the pages of Scripture. The Bible closed. We got our house rules. And we're going to make you conform to our standards. Church, that's not how it should be. Let that person come in here that has the tattoos on that says, I hate Jesus. They can have one that says, I hate Jesus today and tomorrow they can get saved and have, I love Jesus. They can be singing just like we were singing today about the glorious grace of Jesus Christ when he came into our life. Let that be on our hearts and our minds. And, and even you see the response of the father. He's so gracious with his son. Verse 31 and 32, he says to him, son, uh, you've always been with me and all that is mine is what? It's yours. Tender-hearted, gentle, gracious, consistent with God the Father. He says it was fitting to celebrate and to rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and he has begun to live. He was lost, and he's been found. All of this is letting us know that there was true, genuine repentance, and that's how it should be. And it really feels almost inconclusive at this point. Uh, you almost feel like, man, there's, there's extra. And even as they wrote, uh, read this uh, you know, to the early church, there were people that were always understanding, like, man, what happens you see what happens to the younger son and, and the repentance that takes place and the restoration. But what happens to the older son? All you end on is really where the, the, the father gives the conclusion of why they needed to rejoice. And we never get a chance to see the conclusion. But I love John MacArthur. If you don't and haven't received that, he has a book, uh, Tale of Two Sons, and he tells the whole story. And in the conclusion, he says that God does show the end of the story. And the end of the story is really when the Pharisees and the Sadducees said, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. Since you love that son that way and you're merciful and gracious, we're going to kill him. And that's what they did when they killed the Lord Jesus Christ on the rugged Roman cross 2,000 years ago. That was the end of the story. That was the response of the older sons. They conspired together and they killed him. Why? Because God is such a gracious and merciful God. And that's what happens to the churches around here that are legalistic, grace or works-based religion. They don't want people to be righteous and so what they do is they try to make them righteous in their own eyes, and they can always one-up them because it's their own rules. May we never be a church like that. May we never be that way. May we always allow our practice to align with God's will. And not only what we do externally, but it should line up with what's going on internally. Well, we've seen the younger son and the attitude of the rebel that repented, and we see the autopsy of really the self-righteous sinner who looks at himself as better than everybody else and has rules. But the question for you is, which son are you? Which son are you? Which son are you today? It's good to see these two in comparison. You see, the younger son was lost, but he realized he was lost and he became found. The older son was lost, but he stayed in his lost state because he didn't want to come to the father and humble himself. The younger son came to the father on the father's terms, but the older son came to the father and tried to make the terms himself. The younger son didn't stay outside. He realized he needed to repent and he returned. 
But the older son, he stood outside and didn't even have a place to repent. The younger son's relationship with the father was based on grace. The older son wanted a relationship that was based on works. Give me what I deserve. And I don't know about you, but I don't want what I deserve. You see, I'm glad for God's mercy and I'm glad for his grace because he's given me better than I deserve. You need to just ask the question, which one do you most resemble? Are you like the younger son that recognized that you were a rebel against God and you've genuinely repented? Or are you still playing games with God and saying, well, I'm a child of God, but I don't imitate his ways. Or are you like the older son who says that I'm more concerned about my outward appearance before man than my inward appearance before God? Which one are you? Because we can preach sermon after sermon after sermon, but you need to understand your need today. But in the end, no matter what category you are, there's compassion from a loving father. Because this is all about the father. If you're like the younger son and you've lived a wayward life of deep-seated gross sins, you can be like what Jesus said in Luke 5, 32. I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance. There is grace for you. There is no sin that you've committed that is too much for God's grace to cover. God is gracious to you, but you've got to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he was raised from the dead, and that today you can be saved. And then come to Jesus Christ today. But if you're like the older son and you realize that you've been more religious than righteous, more outward than inward, having judgment towards God's people, just realize that like Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, you don't have to have all these rules. You can come and take my yoke upon you. It's easy and light. Don't be burdened and weighed down by all these rules that you put up and standards of man. Come by the standard of God, which is perfect righteousness of Christ that none of us could have. And so therefore he gave it for us so that we might be saved. Come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in the final analysis, we have one loving God that is compassionate, gracious, merciful, and loving in all his ways. And because he rejoices and receives a repentant sinner, so should we. Let us endeavor to be those kinds of people that will receive sinners as God saves them. Let's go to him in a word of prayer right now. Father, we love you so much and thank you for your grace in our life. We ask that you would just uh, be merciful to us today. If there is a sinner among us that needs to repent, Lord, we pray that your word would have penetrated the heart and allow them to inwardly evaluate where they stand before you and that they would have conviction from on high that would uh, be manifested in a life of uh, true contrition and repentance. And I pray, Lord, if there's someone here who is legalistic, and have been putting standards on God's people, that you would convict them of that, Lord, and conform them into the image of Christ, that they would be grace-filled people and not works-based in their religion. We love you, and we praise you for all these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.